Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Okay, welcome to Hammer Factor, episode 56. I'd like to introduce, my name is John Grace, and I would like to introduce my co-host, policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman, and co-owner of Immersion Research, John Weld. Fellas, we made it to 56, and since our last episode, we have surpassed 4,000 subscribers. So, so 4,000 subscribers, that's just for the feed, right? I mean, there's other people listening. I'm not, I'm not trying to, like... Like you all know, the people to... being forcibly subjected to Hammer Factor <laughs> by loved yeah. ones. I mean, it's, I guess what I'm getting, it's hard to pin down exactly how many people listen to this. Yeah, but, I mean, there is no way to tell. I mean, like... It, you can you can do all the searching you want, and it's like a puzzle of figuring out how many people listen to podcasts all over. But 4,000 people who actually subscribe has nothing to do with listens. Our downloads for episodes are well over 6,000 on average, so that's the downloads, and who knows how many people are in the car or whatever. But, hey, I'm going to celebrate, you know, life's little victories there. So, fantasize. So, where... Are you in? Have you completed your move, John? How how was it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We rolled in last night. Uh, we drove, you know, twenty six hundred miles. And I was driving a Penske moving van, trailing a, a car, you know a car trailer, and Kara was driving her pickup truck with her camper trailer behind it. Uh, it took for it took forever. I'm really glad that's over. <laughs> like the like like whitewater gentrifier version of Beverly Hillbillies rolling into town out here. Yeah, we had like 15 boats on the roof and eight bikes strapped on like the, the tow the tow car and the roof of every available vehicle had bikes on it. Yeah, it was, a cool it was amazing. Too. It was amazing going just to like go have a beer with the Welds last night and seeing that like their garage in like like an hour and a half of being in Hood River looks every day as solid as like the garage of any anybody who's living here for like a decade. It's like wow, there's like like 30 bikes in here and I, I can't even quite tell how many kayaks there are. But, but, Respect the number. Oh, you're there to stay. Well, bef- we have a, a a big show lined up. Of course, we've got our rants and raves, our listener mail, and we have special guest Noria Newman, who is going to come on the show. She is in Mumbai right now, uh, but I spoke with her just a little bit ago. She's in her hotel room trying to figure out how to catch a plane and get home, but we'll have her on the show. But before we get into this, I would like to give a special shout-out to Shred Ready. This show is brought to you by Shred, Shred Ready, who began in 1997 in a garage just like HP and Microsoft and Apple, not in a basement. Shred Ready manufactures composite and injected molded helmets for whitewater, kayaker, whitewater kayakers, rafting, and swift water rescue professionals. Our warehouse is located in Salida, Colorado, home of no professional sports teams, but lots of kayakers and mountain bikers and skiers and snowboarders. We, we will be releasing a new helmet, the Zeta at Paddle Sports Retailer in Oklahoma City, which features, among other things, some really cool DCLAN foam technology. Much to Weld's chagrin, it also features a bottle opener. In addition to that awesomeness, we will also be releasing the Deep State Shaggy Limited Edition and some cool socks as well. Contrary to Grace's assertion, we did pay a royalty on the T-Dub to T-Dub and gave the money to Woody for the Green River Access Fund in 2007-ish. Who forgot to cash the check and may still be in his wallet? Go to ShredReady.com and use the code TDubForever. 
That's T-Dub forever. Eva. I'll put that in the show notes. Capital T-D-U-B, the number four EVA for your 10% discount off your next order. That was a good one. Can we talk about the uh, coupon codes or coupon codes real quick? Yeah, sure. Well, it turns out, I found this out, my dad is now listening to this podcast. He's one of the 4,000 or 6,000. Hi, dad. <laughs> he calls me the other day. And he's like, buddy, I listened to the podcast the other day, and there's a lot of things I liked, and he talked about all the stuff he liked. It was the Ear Doctor show. And then he said, but there's something we got to talk about. He's like, what's this weld sucks thing? And I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, that's not right. You cannot let you cannot let that happen. I'm like, what do you? No, 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 no. It's weld sups. He goes, what? I go, sups. <laughs> S-U-P. He's, what? You can't hear Ah, uh, uh, that is so hilarious. what it is. He, and I'm like, he's like, but I, you shouldn't let people out there think that weld sucks. I'm like, but they don't. Trust me. Everyone knows this is. Anyway, at the end of the conversation, I don't think he believed me. Like he, <laughs> that the question still lingers in his mind. So anyway. Well, you certainly have some promo code fame. <laughs> yeah. There's no getting around that. Could um, you guys explain to my dad that everyone knows what what supping is? It's not sucking. It's different. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not sucking at all. <laughs> oh man! Well, we have a we had a big show lined up. We've got our five messages in thirty seconds. Canadian Do- Joe DePesci checked in. Um, Geltman is fully exposed. Uh, we've got some gossip about Whistler, but before she slips off into the abyss, let's bring uh, let's bring Nori onto the show, fellas. Um, while I'm getting her on the show, would anybody be interested in introducing Miss Noria? Geltman? Man, I feel like I'm always so bad at this. Noria is one of the greatest whitewater kayakers of our generation. She's the only person with a world championship slalom medal who's also run site Z and hundred foot waterfalls and can do an air screw. Uh, is a badass world traveler and we're lucky to have her on. I'm stoked to hear about travels in India. That was a good, in- that was a good, a uh, good, very good Hello. intro. There she is. Hey, Noria, you're on hey. with John hey, Well and Lewis Geltman. Welcome to the hammer factor. Hi guys. I, hey, should, I, I should say welcome. Hey, I should say welcome back to the Hammer Factor. Um, right. you, you were on a show previously with Kara and some and some other folks. Um, yeah, and Rebecca Giddens. And, and Lewis just introduced you. You were a world champion um, in the K1 division in 2014. You've been all over the place kayaking. Silver medalist, right? Uh, yeah, I got silver in 2014, and we won the team race in 2014. Because we couldn't get along, so everyone was trying to go as fast as they could away from the others. It was a miserable <laughs> team race. <laughs> I wonder how many of our listeners are familiar with slalom team racing. It's kind I would of guess, an archaic thing. I would guess very few, but slalom team racing is so badass, and I encourage anybody who's not familiar with this to look up a team race on YouTube, because it's sweet. <laughs> it's really fun if you work as a team. 
um, <laughs> that year we didn't. It's pr- pretty fun to just see everyone's behavior, just like crossing the finish line, becoming world champion. And uh, I think one of the girls like, took out on river right and we took out on river left. Pretty much didn't talk, <laughs> didn't smile at each other on the podium. Much <laughs> of a team. <laughs> it was so bad. That's more like a collection of strangers rather than a team. I'm not sure if... Yeah, it was, it was bad. It was just like individual angriness that made us go fast. Um, it was miserable. The first girl, like, one of the girls told the girl that went first that she was slow. And then I was second and she started the race and... She started like full speed and I couldn't keep up. I was like, oh my God, she's so fast. And uh, what was meant to happen, happened halfway through. She did a mistake and um, and I ended up going first. And the two that hated each other were behind me. And uh, <laughs> I just waited for them at the finish. I had the time to do a here deep before the finish line. <laughs> and... Uh, and we won, but it was such a miserable race. <laughs> I don't think any of us has good memories from this. Well, before we get into our uh, the the meat here of our inter- interview, how'd you get into boating? Where are you from? Give us your background in the sport. Um, so I grew up in the Alps in France, and um, I got into boating because some of my dad's friends had kayak on the roof one day. And uh, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I was maybe four years old. Um, it was a, a Eskimo kayak, blue, with the yellow designs on it. They're super ugly. Uh, <laughs> but I had a Playmobil car that had the same designs, like, I swear. And so I was convinced that it was a big toy. And I was like, Mom, Dad, I want to do this. And um, my parents... They're not crazy, so of course they said no. Um, and the argument was pretty good. It's like you don't know how to swim. When you will know how to swim, we'll talk about kayaking. And uh, I think because they said no, I got super motivated, uh, took swimming class for a full summer, and came back with the degree of uh, from the swimming teacher saying I could swim. And a super ugly sort of middle with a yellow duck and on a blue background, it's so ugly. And I was so proud. And then um, I forced them to take me to the kayak club and I started like most French kids, we have a, a really strong club system, which uh, is coming from basically the socialist tradition of France. We have really good club system, whether it's sport or arts or, so you pay like maybe a hundred, 50 euros a year now and you're a member of the kayak club and you can borrow a kayak, a paddle, helmet, life jacket, all you need and you have a coach uh, for every 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 week. Uh, so starting a sport or music in France is fairly cheap and it's um, public funding. So that's how I started and because it's public funding, um, all the clubs encourage or kind of force the kids to compete because the founding is allocated between the different clubs according to the number of kids and the results so that's how i started competing in slalom and downriver and how old were you when you started doing that 
Uh, I started paddling at five years old, and I don't I don't even know if you can call that paddling. I started <laughs> sitting on a kayak on a lake when I was five. Um, that lake is super small. In my memory, it's like the biggest lake ever, and there is like a jungle. Uh, there's absolutely no trees. Like there's maybe some grass going up from the lake, no more. <laughs> um, and I started competing at six. Did my first competition at six, and just kept going on. Right. And so then you comp- competed at slalom for a long period of time. When did you start venturing out onto other rivers and doing river trips? How did that progression progression take place? So I started with slalom and at first um, I was not really competitive at all. Um, I did my first river trip when I was five. It's like a beautiful class one gorge, um, like four hours from home. And I just remember going to the club early in the morning, loading the boats. And uh, to get to the gorge, you have to go down some huge ladders. Um, And so since we were small kids, we had to repeal down and rope our boats down, like our fiberglass boats. And I think that was the coolest thing I've done in kayaking even until now, like, it was just a big, big adventure for me. So that was pretty much my first introduction to running rivers before competing. Um, and then competing took over, uh, mostly to get, you know, the stupid presents that you get when you do a podium, like the super ugly fanny pack with uh, the bank branding on it. And uh, same thing with the ugly plastic trophies. You know, you love bad things when you're a kid. You have the, I had such bad taste. It's unbelievable. Um, I, think fa- I think fanny packs are coming back in, actually. And then, I, and then I was scared for a while. I was uh, super scared of white water. And um, my parents, every, because we, they work in, uh, in a, they worked in a ski resort. So at the end of the season, every, Every year, uh, we would just leave the mountains and go some places. And uh, one year, we went to Costa Rica, and we ended up on the Rio Sarapiki. And there were there was a guy with kayaks. Uh, his name is Miti. He competed in the um, 1992 Olympics. I think he did beat EJ <laughs> at the Olympics. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. And so I paddled with Miti and his sons, and uh, he taught me how to roll, or started teaching me how to roll. And I think that's how whitewater became enjoyable rather than just scary. Because in France, uh, you start kayaking, but no one is going to teach you how to roll. You're just going to fucking swim forever. (laughs) And trust me, the rivers of the Alps have cold water. It is not fun. And I think that's mostly why I was scared. And then once I knew how to roll, it became fun. And I wanted to run rivers. But France being France, uh, plastic boating uh, in my club with the coach I had was for gay people. It was full of faggots, 
Plastic boots were. I'm not joking. Like that's what they would say. Plastic boots were for um, like the trash, you know. Like trash oh are made of plastic in 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 France. So it was like the trash boots. And basically, only if you're just like really bad hiker, you'd have a plastic boot because people would be too scared that you'd break the carbon one. And uh. And then when I was, I really enjoyed, so I would go with my, uh, my dad and his friends who are uh, the perfect definition of a French club boater. Uh, so they're pretty much beaters that have a lot of fun on the And they would take me out and we'd paddle the local run and I would borrow plastic boats. And um, we had world championships in my hometown in Slalom in 2002. So, uh, and pre-world in 2001 and I started a business so I was um I was nine and and ten and I made necklace with little kayaks on them and uh I was young so I could pretty much rip people off uh, I was selling like one necklace was five euros which is insane like it's pretty expensive and and people were like oh she's so cute change. they would just give me like a 20 like 20 euro bill and tell me to keep the change and i made so much money <laughs> um i had a business partner like and i made enough money almost to buy uh, my first ever plastic boat so i bought a wavesport evo <laughs> i think my mom helped me a little bit but she never she never really told me and uh, I was so proud of my new yellow plastic kayak. <laughs> and I went back to the French kayak club and with my plastic boat. And my coach was like, what the fuck is this? This is shit. <laughs> <laughs> boat for faggots. I went back home. And you're all get, girl getting berated. <laughs> I went back home that same night. I was crying. Oh, mom, the coach said this, that. And, uh, but then I started just running rivers and it was fun. And I had to change club because uh, obviously it didn't go too well. So I went to the club that's further down the valley um, where plastic boats were accepted or tolerated. Uh, and the slalom coach was nicer. Uh, I think we've reached the, the maximum potential with the previous coach. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> and after that, I was so lucky because I think I just met the right people. I, um, Nico Chassin was like the very best French freestyle character at, at, at the time. And I think he still is. He's amazing. Um, and so he came to my home river and then he joined yeah. my club. And, and the, the kids from my club that wanted to do freestyle, we did freestyle with him. And so... I ended up doing like river running trips and river running kids camp with Nico Chassin and Deb Pinniger and then really, really got into like river running and and freestyle and going out with my friend's dad as well as continuing the whole slalom and downriver thing. And so that whole time, like as you were progressing in slalom, like it must have been so hard to be running rivers and paddling freestyle and still, you know, succeeding in such a competitive environment and slalom, right? Like, I feel like 
like I don't think Americans realize how hard it is to make the French kayak team. I mean, how I mean, yeah. with the club system they have, how much depth of field shows up at these team trials? So, like I mean, you seems- have you have to qualify to the team trials. Like first, like so French slalom scene just to give an idea to the Americans is so big. We have three divisions uh, of like levels. Um, the first division being only the top 25 girls and then second division, third division but if you're not good enough you don't even make the divisions so you have to be good on regional race score points to rank yourself within one of the division and then every year you try to to progress through it Um, it it was tough but I think it also helped me in a lot of ways um, where before you get 14 year old, you cannot compete in slalom on the cool races, so you do the kids' race. And uh, I started at five, so I was really bored on the kids' race. So when I started freestyle at 11 years old, I was able to do like cool freestyle races. And I think even if it was another discipline, it, it was gaining experience for slalom and gaining like like white water skills and abilities and when i showed up to the normal racing in slalom um one of the the final was on my home course in Saint maurice which is proper white water and the big final is on the top of the course which is consequential class four uh, i think it's one of the best slalom course in the world uh or it was before it changed a little bit and so that really helped me keep up in slalom because those years I scored really well within the seniors, although I was 14 and 15. Like I made top 10, uh, which was huge. And then it qualified me for first division, which was a huge advantage to make a um, junior team back then. So is it fair to say that you could be one of the best French slalom racers and not have a not be able to roll a kayak. Does that happen? Um, I mean, you would know how to roll. You just do the very slow central roll, and um, yeah, rolls are not usually the strong. I mean, you you watch watch the watch the new slalom cross. You see the girls that have the mandatory roll. roll. None of them are doing a back deck roll. They just go full on like in the front and then they flip and then they roll like pretty much like a C2C beginner. <laughs> like this is slalom, but because because you're supposed to be so good that you never flip. And that was a problem for me as a junior. Uh, we had training camps where you had to give money every time you flip and roll as a punishment. And one training <laughs> camp was like, was like five days, I lost like 23 euros. <laughs> bad at some point your 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 focus left the slalom gates and you started seeking adventure in your kayak how did all that when when did that transition happen um i think pretty recently because i've i've done so much more slalom than river running like i would just focus on the slalom because that's also how I would get funding and support and be able to kayak as much as I wanted to. 
Um, so I would just paddle slalom, 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 and whenever I had free time, I'd go creaking. And I think the balance of me starting to do more river running over slalom would be in the last two or three years. Uh, pretty much after after 2014. So at the beginning of the 2014 season, I, I dislocated my shoulders, uh, my shoulder, my left shoulder. And uh, before team trails, I, I took a hit again and I couldn't move. Went to the doctor and he's like, "Now nah, you're good. He told my coach, oh, she's stressed out. Uh, it's nothing. And I was like, gosh, I'm in a lot of pain. So I went to see the physio and I'm like, I know the doctor said it's nothing, but really like it's painful. So they helped me out. They strapped me. And before all the the runs and the races, they would just um, basically warm up my shoulder and make like do some work so that it wouldn't be painful during the run. And I made the team. And after that, I, I was supposed to go to my university exams and I hadn't worked enough and I'm like okay maybe I should just skip it and I so I skipped them I did the medical test but when I if when you skip them it means you fail straight away so you have one more session but if you miss this one you miss your whole year it's like no backup plan but uh, I was like okay no I, I can't do this so I did the medical exams and then it was the second bad news it's not only like I, I put all my school year like at stake on that final exam but uh, my shoulder was really really bad so then I went back to the doctor with the MRI and everything and he's like oh you need surgery now. <laughs> he's, like, he's like oh you need you need a, you need a, a cigarette we're gonna give you a prescription of two cartons of cigarettes <laughs> and, uh, and I was like I was so mad at him because I was like well now I've made the team and like making the French team being so hard I was like I'm not giving my spot I'm going to finish the, the whole season. Um, so I finished the whole season. And uh, it was pretty bad at the beginning because uh, I had like health issues. And then with all the rehab, by the time I was finishing the season and by the time I had surgery, my shoulder was actually almost perfect. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was like I did this to Kim this year with a shoulder that should have had surgery but I did a lot of rehab and then it was hard to be like okay should I do surgery or should I not do it and then I made the call to do it and it was it was hard because it was just a huge step back I went from rehabbing my shoulder for eight months and having it good to just like being at zero again and not being able to move and uh did the surgery, had a rough year, um, did everything I could to come back, and and I just missed the team. Uh, I was just not good enough and not strong enough. I had good times, and then the, the last third of the course, I would lose like four seconds on the split um, videos because we do things really, really precise when you're in the fringe team. You have like split screens and times and you basically know what's your time between each gate of the course. Um, so I knew I was losing a lot of time on the bottom parts because I was getting tired. And po post-bottom part is also more physical than the top. And uh, 
So that was my first year not making the team. And then I didn't make the team and I just went to White Salmon and paddled there and went on a on a road trip with Brandon Wells and uh, John Boy. And I think uh, that's when it all went down. I had so much fun. I just, I was, I was more, I think I stopped um, slalom like this year officially. And then I, I told Vavra, I was like, Vavra, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to stop. And he looked at me and he's like, you stopped three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I, I, was, I was training. And he's like, no, like you, you stopped three years ago. And I think, I think Vavra being Vavra, he's really right. And I, I, I think my, my mind was more into creaking because it was new things for me. And the slalom races, they're, they're the same, you know, like it's La Seo d'Urgel in Spain and then Augsburg in Germany, Leipzig in Germany, Krakow in Poland. It's always the same place. It's the same people. You train on the same course. You do the same training sessions. And I think maybe I started too young, too soon, but I, I was I was burnt out and then I didn't have results and I lost the support from the Federation for different reasons. And I I don't think I was willing to put my own money and, and time into this when I can just run rivers and go see cool places and be with people I like rather than teammates that hate each other. Well, you've, <laughs> you, <laughs> you've certainly been on fire since I've been following you. And I, I, I want to get into a couple little particulars here. I got an email here from John, Jonathan Kessler. He has something that, uh, that a quote that he wants to say to you um, that he sent my way. But let's get back to what does it mean to catch an Eddie like an American? Hmm. Ooh. <laughs> I, I think I tried to justify that last time, and I was just like digging a hole to myself. <laughs> uh, no, no, it's good. I agree 100%. I could not agree more. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think, I think it's not general. Like, do not take it personally if you're really good at catching eddies. Uh, if you're as good as Rebecca Giddens, as uh, when you catch an eddy, no problems. But I <laughs> think that's a low uh, bar. A, <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of That's easy. <laughs> Americans are not really um, focusing on their technique, and some of the best American paddlers, they really think they're really good. And they're horrible. <laughs> our our yeah. local club and coaching infrastructure here is not quite as strong as France's, I have to say. I know, I know, but like, like, um, I think, I think sometimes it just takes like, like critical thinking, and and you can just watch videos and start thinking. But like, I have, I have witnessed some of the really good kayakers. I can't name them. Oh, come on. You can name them. Yeah. Let's name <laughs> no, one. No, no, I, Just can't, one. I can't name them. Teaching kids how to do a forward stroke in a play boat and telling you can work with your big muscles and telling them to use and have like circular strokes, which work really, it works really well in a sprint kayak Yeah. because the sprint kayak stays straight. But in a freestyle boat or even a slalom boat or a creek boat, the boat just um, starts turning sideways 
So basically, it's basic physics. So if you want to have a good forward stroke, you need to maybe apply your boring high school classes to kayaking, <laughs> make them really exciting. Kids, Are you talking? You're talking about Dave Puselli. School Puselli. is actually no, <laughs> right? It's <laughs> Dave Puselli. No, school is actually is actually pretty good, but like like a vertical stroke will help you to apply the forces like where you want to go, rather than a horizontal stroke is gonna turn your boat, so it's not gonna be efficient. Just like basic things that you don't really need coaching to do it. You just need a brain. But what's great for me is that I can keep up with those boys because they lose so much energy. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a few kayakers, and I want you to rate their technique on a one being poor, ten being good. All right? Okay. Oh, this is going to be perfect. It's going to be it's gonna be style. Also, wait. I would like to say something. It's like some people have like poor technique in some some stuff. And everyone has strong strengths and weakness. And so at some point, whatever, sometimes it's ugly, but it works. Yeah, everybody, right, get, every, if, everybody gets poo-pooed at some point on the Hammer Factor, even us, Noria. So it, I, I understand. It's, it's all good. Let's, right. No, but like, let's say, let's say I'm really small. And I would love to have a paddling style that's called anteversion, which means my back is almost bending like like um, the other way and like I'm tall and my chest is out but um, and that's like super stylish you know it's like a Alexander Grimm in slalom and that's like super stylish super efficient the problem is my body type I'm more powerful in retroversion which is the opposite and so I kind of have an uglier style than if my body was better in the other position yeah, you're doing so all you right. also need you also need <laughs> yeah, to do no but you also <laughs> need to do what's, what's what works for you. So I'll rate style slash. Okay. Technique. All right. You guys want to throw out a couple names? Evan Garcia. Yeah, Evan Garcia. Eleven. Eleven. <laughs> okay. Okay. Congrats. Evan. Uh, let's hear about Dave right, Fusilli. Yeah, Dave Fusilli. I give him a two. <laughs> no. Because you need you need to like think like like creaking playboating. I give him a seven. A seven. Okay. Okay. All right. That's a C. Well, I'm not. Yeah, seven. All right. How about uh, Lewis Geltman? Have you paddled with Lewis? Yeah, I've paddled with Lewis. I give him a nine. A nine. Oh, you're just well, being nice. I'm here. He has I um. Some he has some some background some and seeing uh, Lewis on South Merced making Geoff Calhoun freak out because he was catching the very last eddies before Rapids was priceless. It's pretty funny. <laughs> how, about, how about Calhoun? Uh, four and a half, five. <laughs> oh, man. Poor Calhoun is such a hammer factor whipping boy. <laughs> um, but it's not, it's not about the person. It's about the style. Also, style... Don't wear the Spitzer sunglasses and mm. plastic bag for pogies. Because right. that's definitely going to influence, like, you know, like, that's I'm not style. objective. I'm, gonna I'm like, I'm going to judge your paddling style if you paddle with Ziplocs <laughs> as pogies. I'm just going to think that your technique is 
worse than what it is. This is going to be a regular segment on the show. All Ra- right. Rating who style wins, with Noria. Who wins annual over GERD? Who, who would be stronger? Oof. Uh, it's really hard. They have very, very different. Like, I think GERD has a more conventional technique. Uh, so if you're trying to get better, I would look a lot of what, what Gerd is doing. But mm. annual, for me, annual is the best kayaker, like technically in the industry. He has such a good feeling and such a good water. And I don't, I'd like to be in his brain for, for a river to see what he sees. Because I think he just perceive things differently and he had definitely has like style i, I don't know anyone that's like annual doesn't have style you can quit kayaking because you're wrong <laughs> all right <laughs> Move, moving on um dane jackson pat keller Ooh. um they're not smooth at all so if i look at forward stroke uh, they're super. Dane is super efficient. Dane is fast, but it's just not looking as good as as Anil or Jurd, because he has that body position where his strength is like a little bit more like like a like me, like a, a muscle hamster sort of style. <laughs> muscle hamster, I like but, that. Uh, I mean, That's the next hammer factor T-shirt. <laughs> you cannot not give a ten to Dane Jackson. And then uh, Pat Killer might not have the smoother style like uh, in a straight line, but when he's in white water, it's it's amazing too. Like I I I can only give him a ten. Also for running the mankiest waterfall that I've ever seen any kayaker run, besides <laughs> Teo. Uh, I mean, you can only respect that. So who wins? Dane or, or Pat, who who comes out on top on on, uh, on balance? For me, Dane. Dane. All right. I, let me let me. Can, can I end this I mean, game? Have you seen Dane in a freestyle boat? Sure. It's insane. True. And then in a creek boat, like when he's racing, it's not like looking as smooth. But when he's just paddling big rapid, his his lines are crazy good. So I have a request here. This is this is totally off topic, but I'm going to throw this out because Jonathan Kessler has sent this to me a couple of times. He says, hey, Noria, what up? I think you're a legend, and I'd love to paddle with you sometimes, and maybe afterwards go get some French fries. We could even borrow mm. somebody's duo, and I could sit in the front. I'm a 21st century man and totally cool with being submissive to a higher female power. <laughs> All right. Well, Break that down for us. Let's say something. French fries... French fries are not French. It comes from Belgium. We don't eat fries. This is not proper food. Uh, this is blasphemy. <laughs> so um, maybe we go grab proper food, not French fries. Uh, second, no one wants to go with me in a duo. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, the, uh, I've had a successful duo descent with uh, Mike Roy from Quebec for a Red Bull project down Hooker Falls. But when I take people down, it's a disaster. I took this pro skier from Red Bull. He told everyone at the office that kayaking is the most savage thing he's done. <laughs> <laughs> we swam well, he's twice right. on some class four. I was like, 
he's a pro skier. I cannot take him on something easy. We went on this like continuous class for Alpine Mink. I couldn't see past him. And uh, we swam twice. He's almost 90 kilos. It was horrible. And then um, I took one of the girls from Red Bull. She... She um she swallowed some water in the middle of the big rapid. It was flooded. I told her it was flat water, and it was flat water. And you see the castle is beautiful, and then you reach this this rap, cool rapid that was flooded. And uh, she the wave was so big, and she screamed and swallowed some water, and she's laughing for the next thirty minutes afterwards. Like, trust me, you don't want me to take you down. <laughs> Just. Work on your own kayaking. I'll, I'll take the dinner, but we can skip the duo. Uh, I do like your role as scaring the shit out of skiers, though. <laughs> I think that's a, an important position in our sport. Well, the, the, the problem is I'm going to have to pay back one day. Hmm. I've been trying to avoid... Oh, no, I'm not available. <laughs> yeah, you want to take me car racing? No thanks. <laughs> Well, let's switch gears over to this. Uh, I recently read your kayak session article um, about the meat versus veganism. What's your take on all this? Ooh. Well, I was trying to be a little controversial because sometimes the kayaking scene is boring. And uh, my take on all this is uh, you can be a vegan, but do not be judgmental. It gets really tiring. And there is a trend um, in the U.S. and in, in North America with, and even in Europe with people being vegan and they tell you this is the best thing and they're all organic and everything. And um, it, it, it gets me really tired because I grew up eating what was on my plate. And if I didn't finish, I would not eat um, vegan or not vegan or whatever. And eating good meats... Um, from the market in France or once in a while even if you eat junk meat it's not worse than the Bolivian quinoa you're eating you know and at some point um, no one can do things perfectly so you can just try your very best and uh, and I think it was cool because both Rush and and Big Man had good points and good argument and it was funny the way they put it together in in a good old rap battle. <laughs> uh, so that was good. It was just like, I used veganism, like, same thing as, like, people get all fired up with boat brands, you know, like, the rap shouldn't be forbidden at sick line, and they get really strong opinions about things that really they should be a little bit more tolerant about, you know? I paddle Jackson in... Uh, I like boofing on dicks. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's okay. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Like, man, so, some some people, and I'm, and I'm sorry, like, I, I have a really tough time to understand East Coast paddlers because oh. I think most of the internet trolls are coming from the East Coast. After that sick line scandal, I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I ever want to go there. And then you look at the map, and I mean, most Trump voters are probably coming from there too. So people are like, when are you coming to the Green Race? I'm like, uh, it's shallow water, it's expensive for me, and I, 
I'm gonna be surrounded by those people that I'm scared of. I'm really scared of the river too. No thanks. Uh, one day, one day. Uh, one day I'll overcome my fear and I will come to the green race. But also I've seen Russia's video. I don't want to get pinned in the longboat. Those things don't turn. There's a reason why we, we're all paddling short boats nowadays. <laughs> well, you can paddle a short boat if you want. I'll be slow. <laughs> so true. I got a couple more questions here. We're 40 minutes into your interview, Noria, and this has been awesome. Kind of a, kind of a two-fold question here. Of your paddling career so far, what has been the highest, highest moment and, what, and what's been your lowest moment? Oh, um, I think there's been a lot. Like, it's hard to name one moment, but, like, like some of my highest moments were probably just, like, whenever you paddle on an amazing river with a really good crew, like, my first sticking with the Quebec Connection or even this year paddling the Betiamit with the Quebec Connection, um, the Bighorns expedition with, with Ben and, and Boomer were were really good. Um, the Diamante in Argentina was was amazing. The Whitewater Grand Prix in 2012, uh, it was pretty unique to travel with everyone, and and it's where I probably met like a lot of my best friends. You know, paddling with Marianne as a kid was also really good. Um, I think it's hard to name one moment because. Even with Boomer, we're like, what are your favorite river trips? And then we tried to name like five of our favorite river trips. And and in both our top five, we had this trip we did together on the Jarbridge Bruno. And it's and it's class two free. Like it's it's an easy river, but we had a really big crew. It was super fun. Uh, we had good food. And so that was definitely one of the highest moments, even if we, it's not not an achievement or anything and then the lowest were probably just um like dark times uh training slalom where things go wrong and and i mean slalom's great it brings the best in you as a kayaker you know like technically and mentally uh, but for me it also broke the worst in me as a person where i was selfish i was self-absorbed uh the most important things were slalom and slalom and slalom and I would not be nice to my friends or or my parents or my coach at times because I would just get burnt out and you're the closest people are the one that um, take the hits when things are, are wrong and when you're just being an asshole. So I think that was a low and then the lowest... Uh, it's it's been losing friends uh, to the river, and I had, or or outside of the river. But I had a a really hard year um, in 2015 where I lost a lot of friends um, on the river and also outside of the river. But they were like kayakers, and uh, every time it was like this this has to stop, this has to stop, and. I would start to do better and then something else would happen. And so that was definitely the lowest, but I think it's it's not necessarily kayaking. It's just like when you have hard times in your life outside of kayaking, it's going to affect the way you paddle and and the 
everything and you just have to deal with it. Yeah, well said, for sure. Well, what's, what, Nori, what are you doing right now? I mean, you're you're in Mumbai. What what you just were on a long trip somewhere, right? Uh, yeah. I'm finishing off a month-long trip in India. Uh, came here to race for the Malabar River Festival, and then we were supposed to explore the state of Kerala at monsoon season. Uh, we had a a trip that was partly sponsored by the Kerala Tourism Board with uh, Olaf Opsomer, Manu Arnu, Philippe Baus, Tilo Schmidt, and Quinn Connell. Uh, so it looked really, really good on the paper. And then we got there and we tried to put on rivers and uh, we didn't get any of the permits we applied for. We got stopped by the police. We got stopped by the forest department. We spent hours trying to deal with Indian administration. That will test your patience uh, if you ever need a test. Um, I think we all became a little bit racist at times. Uh, luckily, then we met some cool Indians, so it got better. Uh, and then our, we're like, okay, we can't get the permits, so let's just poach it. But um, our driver was a spy, so we'd call the cop time and we'd get caught before we even get to the river. Uh, so we did paddle a few stuff, and like we almost paddled every day, but not nothing incredible. Uh, so it was really frustrating. And uh, the Germans being Germans, there was a huge cultural gap between German and Indian culture. And they were going, they were going crazy. They were going crazy. It was, it was painful to watch, but it was, I mean, I was going crazy too. But they were going crazier, like, and so they basically, they basically gave up on kayaking and were like, okay, we're living in two days. And um, and Queen and I were like, no, we need to kayak. We need to find stuff. And uh, we went to check this tourist waterfall and there was no network up there so the driver couldn't call the cops it was perfect <laughs> we told him we're gonna go sightseeing and um and then we ended up running um the first two sets of drops uh, i crashed pretty bad and broke my paddle uh, did half of the rapid upside down it was pretty savage and I was so bruised, but the next day we're like, oh, we should check out the, the river downstream. It's It might be like a 12-hour bushwalk, but we should check it out. Otherwise, we're never going to do any mission in India. So we bought machetes, and the next day we put on for an early day. and every So we had one first portage, and then we're ready to just portage and rope down, and Every time we'd see like a horizon line and we'd be like, oh, okay, this is going to be the big portage. And every time there was a line. And so it ended up being like a really, really sweet first descent with like maybe like 15 good rapids and, and drops. And then in between rapids that were still like, like manageable mank or fun little booths. So... <laughs> That was that was really cool, but I was still really frustrated. 
frustrated with with my trip in India, and I was like, oh, I don't think I will ever come back to India if I if I leave now. And I decided to go to Ladakh in the Himalayas and do that trip. Uh, that's uh, three rivers that flow into each other: the Tarab, that flows into the Zanskar, that flows into the Indus. Um, I I had a little bit of beta, not too much. And I thought it was going to be just, you know, a chill solo mission. And it was uh, a little bit harder than what I expected because 450 kilometers. And on day two, I um, kind of messed up. It was all flat rapids and easy. And I was just paddling by myself. And I see this entry of a bigger rapid and I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. And um, it was a really gnarly rapid with like a really tight line and I got pushed by a rea- reactionary hole uh, straight into uh, pockets that happened to be a sif and as I was stuck there um, my boat started like getting like sinking getting like sinking in the sif so um, I jammed my paddle in between rocks, jammed my dry bag with everything important in between the rocks, and I was um, hoping to uh, get my sling out, clip my boat, and jump on the rock and just um, self-rescue. And um, I am slightly too short to reach the front grab loop of my kayak. So I had my sling and I couldn't clip it because I was too short, so I had to kind of move outside of my sit. And once I did that, it moved the boat that was stabilized and and just kind of went loose again. And uh, when I tried to push to get on the rock, uh, it just went and I went uh, through the Sith, which was super scary and messed up. And uh, and I was like, oh no, this this cannot be happening. You're just so stupid. Like you should have scouted. I should have scouted that rapid. I was just. I don't know what I was thinking. I was just not thinking straight. You know, just not being focused. Um, Nicole always says, you have to remember to go kayaking when you go kayaking. It's a good <laughs> advice. It sounds dumb, but it's really good advice. And I should have followed this. And um, so I swam. I was really happy to see the surface after a fairly long time underwater. And then I realized uh, once I was able to breathe that uh, it wasn't over because I had to swim the whole rapid, which was a gorge with quite strong whirlpool. And my boat was ahead of me, so I had to catch my boat and so I swam, and I caught my boat, and then I finally got my boat to shore, and next thing I see is my paddle floating down. So I had to jump again and swim after my paddle, got my paddle. My boat was loose in the eddy again by that time. Got my boat, and, and um, at this time I, was, I didn't know if my dry bag would still be jammed in between the rocks where I left it. And I had like my inrich, my map, my camera, 
my passport, everything, my credit card and some money, everything important in it. So I was, I was kind of a little bit stressed out. And uh, thankfully, after scrambling up for a few hundred meters, like crossing river, climbing up cliffs to, to get to the, the beginning of the rapid, uh, my dry bag was still where I left it. So I had to do a little bit of a ferry and a goat jump out of my boat to get on the island fast because there was not a really good eddy. And I got my dry bag and paddled down and and that's actually when it started being really, really hard for me. More than when I was dealing with the situation because now it was just safe and and I was just really cold, really tired and mostly really, really scared and angry at myself for doing such a dumb mistake. And after this, the next five days, um, they were not super easy. So that was on the first day of a 450-mile expedition as that on, you were doing solo? As on my, I was on my second day. Second day. And then did you complete the whole run after that, or did you hike out at some point? Um, well, I couldn't really hike out. Like, I mean, there is trail roads, but it would be harder to hike out than it is to paddle down. Um, and, and did you end up and, in the Indus on this trip? Yeah, so I paddled down. Um, all the way to the Indus and Zanskar Confluence. And then I stayed at a rafting company and I skipped um, one of the flat water section parts uh, because there is a, a dam and I didn't want to have to portage around the dam facility and get problems because um, it's so close to Pakistan. It's, there's a lot of military and a lot of like areas where it's forbidden to get to get to and you need permits and everything and I think I've had enough problems with police and and authorities in India on, on that trip. So I got dropped off after the dam and then um, paddled on the Indus for two days, which uh, was quite nice because there is. Um, there is not a lot of siphons, just really big water and big whirlpool. And uh, my jaw is just dropped right now from this story. <laughs> I had no idea. So you just got off this big trip, essentially paddled sections of the Indus and everything, all solo. Yeah. So we've had we we in an earlier episode, we all three had mentioned that we did enjoy paddling solo from time to time, and we got a bunch of people writing in saying that it was really a safe and we shouldn't be doing it. What do you think about solo boating and has that has your opinion changed after this trip? You know, like um it's always it's a tough question, you know, like yeah, it is unsafe to paddle solo, but it is still safer than paddle with someone that shouldn't be on a section of river that they're paddling to. Ooh, and a lot of people are stepping up their game too fast or doing stupid things and I mean me included eh? I'm not better than anyone else you know we all have done like really stupid things and lose things at times and then there are mistakes that are different because 
if you have the skills and the ability to be somewhere, the river being the river, you can still do mistakes and, and you can still end up in a bad place. Um, but I had this conversation with Ron Fisher because um, he battles solo quite a, a bunch and in Europe is really not accepted. Like you can't, like, pff. even my own river is like class free and sometimes raft guides, they, they, they give me shit for paddling it solo. But for me, it's almost safer to paddle it solo than paddle it with someone that's that's going to swim and we're going to have an epic. Like Calhoun, I, for instance. <laughs> no. Calhoun is a I'm good kidding, character. Jeff. Jeff, I'm sorry. <laughs> Calhoun is a good character. I don't like I his know. paddling we style, <laughs> but that's, that's just personal opinion. Uh, and please, people, when I write controversial things, don't take it personally. None of, we can none, all have our own opinion. None of us do, and you just got to take Mr. Well with a grain of salt sometimes. So. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like wearing a, a fucking life jacket. Wear a fucking life jacket. We've all paddled without a life jacket. I've done some freestyle without a life jacket. It feels incredibly good. You feel like you're cracking naked. No one is ever gonna give me like a hard time for it. But then a dumb kid does it, and it becomes a huge social media buzz um, with insults and. Cyberbullying, right. and and then that becomes okay. I mean, I, you always should wear a life jacket, <laughs> but you also should not cyberbully anyone. You know, or uh, troll anyone. No, I hear like, you. That's mean. I hear you a hundred percent. Well, Noria, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you decide to come to the Green River Narrows race ever, you can stay at my house. I'll take you under my wing and make sure you're safe. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Ooh, that's, that's a good offer. Well, I'm not coming this year because I'll be in school again, but uh, maybe one year. Well, very good. Well, that was incredible. I could just sit there yeah. and talk about that trip solo Seriously. and everything that went on for an extended period of time, but we are so deep over our time allotment that we got to move on. Yeah, and honestly, working with Indian photographers afterward was harder than soloing. <laughs> but that's another story <laughs> they're very lazy alright bye bye Nora Thanks, thank Nora. you thank you Nora yeah, safe travels I don't even know what to think about all that I mean yeah I mean as Geltman said without qualification of gender she is one of the best kayakers in the world right now <laughs> yeah yeah no doubt well said I mean I don't you I, I can't emphasize, and Geltman can back me up more so on this, how difficult it is to make the French kayak team, right? Yeah, I mean, I got to think that... You like, have to be... I got to think that there's, probably the 25th men's kayak would, would handily make the U.S. team, like, easily. Say that again? I, I would have to think that, like, whoever is, like, 25th at French team trials would easily be on the U.S. team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, 20 women in France who could win the world on any given day. Or more. Yeah. I mean, huge depth of field. Just like such an amazing insight into like what it's like being a kayaker in France and like coming up that way. Like, I mean, like we like think we're tough because we had to like, you know, sleep in gravel parking lots with no sleeping pads and stuff like that. But like at least people were like generally nice to us, you know, like 
it was like because we deserved it and it was like the way that your older brother beats you not like some angry frenchman giving you a hard time about the first kayak you ever bought you know <laughs> calling a 10 year old girl a dumbass and <laughs> yeah uh, that wasn't the word that she, that he used if i recall correctly but yeah. okay yeah. i don't know i wish i would have known about that expedition that she went on solo before we started the show because i would have got a lot deeper in that but that was, a, that was right. awesome how can we move on here quickly well like, what this, do we, what can we do? let's get right into lewis here lewis you're essentially exposed this is from an article i'll have in the show notes at the hill.com that basically says the chinese are using environmental laws to underline undermine the military did you read this article lewis and are you involved with this so I, I don't can't remember if I read this article or not, but let's be clear that that is not actually happening. And that's not what the Hill is saying. That's what Rob Bishop is saying in some flippant moment in which he wants to attack environmental organizations. And I, I mean, it's 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 laughable, but it's also just it's that's not helpful. Right. Like there are legitimate things going on in our country right now in by which foreign governments are nefariously engaging in our democracy and just, you know, trying to create some sort of false equivalence there by claiming that, that, you know, legitimate environmental concern about things that, that the military is doing is actually being funded by the Chinese or it's meant to you know, deter military readiness or something like that. Like just throwing that out there, you know, that's Rob Bishop, like trolling basically. And Should- but just doing that is like, it's just, it's not responsible. And it's like, you know, just you're a member of Congress. Like, don't just traffic in innuendo. It's it's ridiculous. Shouldn't liberals start doing the same thing? Like, be like, Republicans are trying to steal your bikes. They're trying to rip the bikes from your family. Stuff like that. Just like outrageous claims that. I don't know. There was an interesting article morality. on Think Bike the other day about uh, the impact of, of Trump's tariffs on the the bike industry because so much is manufactured overseas. But uh, <laughs> but no, I mean let's not like like let's not do that. Let's all commit ourselves to basing our arguments in truth. You know, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, like, I want to say I want to say something flip about Rob Bishop in that article, <laughs> but like it's like like fuck off, man. Like that's not helpful. The truth is not the truth. Here's another one. Um, this comes at us from Kevin Pierce. He's talking about Whistler. I'm going to throw this one to you as well, Mr. Weld, because I believe you were just up there for the Callahan race and some of the other creeks. Basically, um, anytime you've been to Canada, you know, it's a whitewater paradise. You can essentially camp at all the takeouts and several other places, uh, but the mood has shifted. The Whistler Resort Municipal Government and BC Parks have cracked down on kayakers van camping near the Chequemus and Callahan takeouts. Uh, he says a few uh, influential influential locals have become generally irate towards kayakers, um, writing into their mun- municipal councilors and submitting ac- um, accusations against uh, accusation articles to local editorials. Um, what can we – basically the gist of it is is what can we do to ensure we don't lock in these access points or how can we lock in these access points for the future? Like what what should the steps be for that community who's, who's, who's getting cracked down on? Yeah, I mean I don't think that there is a huge danger to access up there. I mean I think that he's mostly talking about the the – parking a lot at the takeout of the Chequemus, which is right in Whistler. And it's somewhere that kayakers have camped forever, but 
is signed as no camping. And there's a bunch of, you know, relatively new housing developments. Like I think it was actually the athlete village for the Olympics up there. And it's very close to that zone. And, you know, the people who live over there want to go walk their dogs in the morning and they don't like seeing a bunch of kayakers in the parking lot. And, you know, I think part of the problem is that, you know, Whistler's become ungodly expensive. There's no affordable housing up there. And there are a lot of people up there who are working for the summer who are basically living in their cars in that parking lot. And, you know, I, I don't really know what the best way to go about dealing with that is if you're actually concerned about the future of that spot as a river access point, which I, I wouldn't particularly be worried about. But, you know, if that's what your real concern is, then you got to get the kayakers and stop camping there. And, you know, I mean, I've camped there plenty of times myself. You can also drive further up the Chequemus Road and not get hassled. Um, you know, I think you guys need to do some exploring and find some other gypsy camps up there because, you know, I think it's it's going to be a tough a tough battle to win. And it's it sucks, you know. It's like that's what happens when, you know, Vail takes over your town and everything becomes ungodly expensive. And... You know, it's like, it's just, I don't know what to say beyond that. I mean, it's like, I, I'm not sure you're going to win. Well, do you think, I mean, do you think it's time for Canadian whitewater paddlers to develop their own American whitewater association that, that protects the interest of Canadian whitewater paddlers? Yes, a thousand times over. And I mean, I, I know Steve Arns, who runs the Liquid Lore website and is a, you know, long time leader of the community up there is interested in pursuing this project. I've had conversations with him about it and interested in helping him do that. I know Maxie Newwasser has been interested in doing something along those lines with Steve. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, even beyond sort of backyard conflict with, you know, rich people issues, there's a massive amount of hydropower development that's going on up there. There's a threat to dam the Callahan that's very real. Um, and, you know, BBC overwhelmingly needs some sort of organization like that. And, you know, I've had some conversations with some folks who are interested in doing that. And I'm extremely interested in helping. Uh, I think it it's something that it's an idea that's time is, is come and then some. And let's let's all make that happen. Yeah, I agree. I've I've ran that by some folks, Mark Singleton and American Whitewater. They are fully committed to showing every bit of experience, knowledge, and the way they do things to anybody up there who really wants to make it happen. So, I mean, legitimately, I, th I think that the reason there's not an American whitewater type organization is because there is so much access and so much paddling and so much room. And this is, I think, just the kind of start of the way things will be in the future. Yeah, it's just such a huge country up there, and there's like I think a pretty big disconnect between the East Coast and the West Coast paddlers is the way those guys have described it to me, and they've talked about whether they would want to create some kind of American whitewater for all of Canada, and I think you know the approach that the people I've talked to up there sort of agreed on, I think this kind of makes sense, is maybe just to start with BC, you know, take on a project that's a little more manageable to begin with, and maybe that evolves down the road, but, you know, I think organizing kayakers to become advocates for free flowing rivers advocates for our own access is you know it's a it's been done and it's been done with a ton of success and i know that everybody at american whitewater 
and you know myself as well like we're super ready to share what we know and and help make that happen because it's it's a worthwhile endeavor um moving into the next topic of conversation dr hetzler specifies the correct ear device so john do you want to touch on this i believe you had a phone call with him hey he wrote me back he listened to the show and if dr hetzler if you're listening i want to thank you again for coming on that was great but he 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 uh, he felt like he needed to clarify the 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 device that he recommends, and I guess John, you'll put that up in the show notes. Also, we had a, a someone write us like today asking about what type of earplugs to use if he recommends the brand. I'll, I didn't get a chance to write them today, but I'll write them this week. And so next show, I think it was Grace who wrote in and asked about that. I'll get a recommendation on earplugs also. Yeah, I mean, I, if I recall, he was saying that you can just you know, use whatever. And I, I like those silicon ones that come in a pack of like a dozen or so they're in the, you know, you can buy them at any grocery store. I think max is one of the brand names, but there's, there's yeah. other ones out there. They're just like little balls of white silicon. They were good. I'll ask him if he has any recommendations, I'll pass it on. I think with listener mail, we should just get right to the Alexander falls thing and, and, and Joe Pesci. And we also have the five questions. Okay. Yeah. Let's punt these other ones for another day. Yeah. Um, Alexander Falls, we talk about, I think for sure, because that was an amazing uh, piece of footage. Yeah, let's jump into Alexander Fa- Alexandria Falls, and then uh, and then we'll do Canadian Joe Pesci. We'll do our top five, and then we'll wind her down. Who wants to start on the Alexandria Falls? Give us a little background on this. Whoever has, m- I-, I watched it a-, a day or two ago, but give us Watch some background. Friends video. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that they had had such a run of gnarliness up there so first of all where is where is alexandria falls it's in the northwest territories way in northern canada it's a hundred footer it's basically a flat water approach or a slow moving water approach and then it's flat water i mean it's flat water it's a big pool on the bottom but it's a hundred feet it first ran by rush and tyler and then yeah it was first run by i want to say jim grossman is that right no 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 like it was was first easy in the 90s. No, no, no. It was first run by... Uh, it was oh, the world record in, for it was yeah, a, It that. was in an S6. Um, no, it was an easy... It was Jim Grossman, I think, no? Oh, oh man. I think... Uh, Ed Lucero. Wasn't it Ed Lucero? Ed Lucero, yes. Yeah, and he was, was, he was like right? in a piranha S6 or something like that. The original soul boater. And, and I think he got ejected from his boat, but he was stoked with his line. That's what I remember. From that topic. Anyway, so these crews rolled up to this thing. Two two different crews rolled up sort of at the same time. Uh, it was Evan Moore's group and then Bren's group. Um, and then what happens? I mean, Grace, describe. The, so the I mess. saw I saw Shredward the other day. Or no, I guess I haven't seen him since then. But he was paddling like a damaged boat. And folded it around his leg and broke his leg on impact. Yeah, so that was so that was day one. So essentially, they're all up there. They're kind of camping out at this waterfall. Day one, one of the three people who runs it breaks his leg. Correct. Right. As, okay, and his boat folds on his leg, hundred footer. Day two, um, they go have another line. Adrian um, Matterhorn. Is that how you say Adrian's name? Matturn goes first, and he goes down, almost boofs it, but comes out okay. 
Bryn comes up next. Looks like he has a good line. Everybody's hooting and hollering for him at the bottom. He's, he says himself, looking at the video, it's the perfect line, which yeah. is important to yeah. this, this conversation. Yeah, where we're going with this. So basically, he sticks it. He's in the midst of the falls. Everybody watches him run it. They're cheering because they're sure he just stuck it. He comes out upside down, no movement. Quickly, the safety team realizes that it's not right. He is, in fact, knocked out cold, has busted up his face, broken his nose, and they have to essentially rescue him, knocked out in his boat, he, get him to shore before he actually comes to. And he's wearing a full face helmet, too. It's not like he's wearing a, a, an ace or something. I mean, yeah. He has a real helmet on. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm going to throw out to you guys is, well, let's just start with, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I would add this- to this conversation, you know, Shredward sticking uh, Rams Falls earlier this summer, breaking his nose, concussing himself badly. How tall is that? About 100. Yeah, is this Are we doing, is this kayaking or is this something else? Is this just a stunt? It's kayaking. There's a skill to it. But I mean, there's a is reason. there? I mean, Brent, Brent said he had a perfect line. I mean, what skill is that? <laughs> he wouldn't have done anything different. I mean, is it possible to run that perfectly every single time? Or you, is but, just I mean, one, I, I, mean, I think that's one saying, in three bash your face. I mean, I think that there's a skill to running big waterfalls. I think that when you start looking no, at like, drops, yeah, that it's maybe it's just for the sake of argument. There's a skill to running a <laughs> sixty foot. There's there's a skill to running maybe a fifty or sixty foot waterfall where you could sort of get to a, a point where you're nailing this thing ten out of ten times. But a hundred feet, are you beyond that? Where it's just there's too many other variables at play to really for skill to play, come into hand, come into play. I don't feel qualified to judge. I, I can I can honestly say I, the highest waterfall I've ever ran is eighty feet, and the difference between you know. When you're running a big waterfall and you run like a 30-footer and then you run like a 50-footer, you can hear yourself accelerating. Do you know what I mean? And the difference between running a 60-footer and 80-footer is huge in my experience. Just the way you can just feel that acceleration as you get to the bottom. I can only imagine from the 80 to the 100-foot range. And so I think that if you're doing everything perfect and you're still – getting beat up on multiple occasions, then maybe the technique's not right. Or maybe maybe the technology's not there. Maybe the boats need something to to tuck behind. Like maybe something needs to be a a little bit different because I don't think it's a stunt. Um but at the same time I don't kinda you know, if you've got, you know, six people that run a waterfall and two out of the six have broke have broken bones I mean, you're getting past the, you know, the level of, of, you know, the percentages are starting to not work in your favor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd say (laughs) one in three. (laughs) And I'm not taking anything away from any of the skill or any of the decisions or whatever. But I mean, maybe I've just never been super fascinated by the big waterfall thing. But if you're sticking it and you're still getting screwed, I don't know, man. There's like a coolness factor gone there. That's 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 what killed it for me when Bren said that he had what he considered the perfect line and nothing went his way. I mean, I'm not sure what. I mean, you may be right. Maybe it's just a a, a gear thing, but a, a gear or a technique or like, you know, or I don't, maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe there's something wrong with that drop. You know, 
Maybe. So you got to start being pretty choosy, I think, when yeah. you start. Maybe there's something wrong with Ram, Ram Falls as well, and maybe the problem is they're 100 foot tall. <laughs> it's interesting that it's not, it's like maybe it's, again, it's like I feel so out of my depth on this conversation, but like it's interesting that those guys both, you know, hit their faces super hard, presumably cockpit ram. I mean, it's interesting that it's like you're, the boat's decelerating faster than you're getting blown back by the water. So it's like you're going forward, not back. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like there, there's some kind of, some kind of, some, there's, there's, there's something going on there that maybe once it gets figured out, it could, I mean, it's like when people really learn to consistently boof, it really changed the dream of running a vertical drop. Maybe the, maybe the technique, maybe, maybe like a hucking hood or something, you know, maybe there's something that needs to be filled in the blank there before it airbag airbag, you know, something I don't, I don't know, but a barrel, <laughs> just get someone in a barrel, <laughs> tape them up and shove them off. I don't know. That's just my thoughts on it. And it's not taking anything away from any of those boys or any of that stuff. That's not what I'm doing, but man, no, for sure. I mean, that's a ballsy move for sure. I mean, does that, Do is that JP? What's that? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Is that what it takes to, uh, is that what it takes to to be a pro kayaker now, you guys? Do you have to go up and run hundred foot falls? Is that is that kind of where it's at? I don't. I mean, so. you're asking me if I'd sponsor somebody just on that that on that merit. Would it add to the resume? Ooh, look, this guy's ran Alexandria and Ram Falls. No. Anyway. I sort of feel like in a way like huge waterfall running kind of has fallen out of style a little bit in the last five years. Like I feel like, you know, I think like it didn't eight or nine years ago, too, right? it was like a much bigger focus of kind of the most progressive guys in the sport. And now it's, it seems like it's become a little more of a, yeah, I don't know. Less the focus. I mean, you're going over 50 miles an hour when you hit the water and I yeah, mean, what's it, terminal velocity for a human being 55 miles per hour. You know, like I, I mean, I don't know, but I mean, you're stopping in a pretty short amount of time. And if your kayak just stops and your head goes into your kayak at 55 miles an hour, it's like hitting a bridge abutment in your car on the highway. Anyway, I'll be, you know, if, if you're listening to the show, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that video. We had several people write in about us, write in about it. Um, wanted to hear our thoughts, but I want to hear some other people's thoughts on the whole process of that. Um, we won't use your name if you want to send that in. Um, I don't have anything else to say on that. You guys be safe out there, kids. All right. All right. Moving on. CJP. Hey guys, I noticed that I've been using the phrase, uh, you can only run a rapid blind once kind of regularly and i'm just wondering how you guys make decisions about what you're gonna scout and what you're not gonna scout and uh does it matter to you if you get to run a rapid blind or do you not care would you rather scout uh yeah thanks for letting me know guys dude that guy's awesome i mean <laughs> he sounds funny but he's got legit questions every time he, he calls he's, he got he's, he's getting a little more synced too which i have to, i appreciate yeah there's definitely a draw to running a, a rapid blind, in my opinion, but I like to scout. I've always liked to scout. And it's not because I'm it's not I don't think it's fear driven. I just like to nail the line. 
You know what I mean? And if I can nail the line and if I can take a quick look at it and really dial it in, it makes me feel good. You know what I mean? I hate to run a rapid and run it sloppily. You know what I mean? I don't feel like I've run it at that point. I feel like I left a lot on the table. I'm more in Weld's camp, but I feel like there are, it depends on the rapid. Like there are some rapids that are like really sweet to run blind for your first time. Like if someone gives like, me good instruction, like you should do this, this is exactly how it's going to look. And it's a simple two part maneuver. You know what I mean? Okay. There are also some rapids where you get this really cool, like shock to the system sensation where it's like, you can't, you have no idea what you're in for before you go. Like, like fire hydrant on the South Merced. Like that is like a great rapid to run blind for the first time. Or yeah. like like entrance falls on the Stikine. Like you see nothing. Like you see absolutely nothing. And like all you've run to that point is like basically flat water. And all of a sudden you have like this really shocking sense of like what you're in for. And it's like it's a pretty cool thing to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's and I wanna put a caveat on there that when I say run a rapid blind, it's with I'm running it with someone I know and trust who can like tell me the line correctly i'm not talking about just like going out on a river i've never run and on a horizon line and just being like let's give her we can only do this once we've all paddled with people who run stuff who run stuff blind you know they've never run it before either i mean i know people are just geared that way they're like fuck it i'm going i'm not into you know, that at wait, all wait, wait, wait. no i know it's terrifying no. those people always get beat up too yeah that's totally totally not mine but anyway jp thanks for the message that was a good one i hope we answered the question now we've got these five questions in 30 seconds we've got a lot of good listener mail here but as always we are way over the time slot um so i have to read these questions to you john grace just the way these things are structured like lewis is discounted from this from answering at least one of them okay um which one is that Okay, don't worry about it. I'll, uh, okay, 30 seconds. Let me get my timer. This is always a lot of pressure. Okay, tell me when you're going to go. Are you ready? Ready. In three, two, one. Steven Promosa wants to know hearse or minivan for shuttle vehicle. Minivan. Having a hearse around Whitewater is just the weirdest thing ever. Can't condone it. Minivan. Kevin. He wants to know, should he charge 50 cents a mile for shuttles for wear and tear on his vehicle? No, but he should get his lazy friends to drive their car. Rob Scanlon, GoPros and sharing on social media. Have we gone too far? I don't think you need to share your GoPro every time you go on a run, but it can be really cool to, especially if you're like trying to nail lines or do race practice or something, to see what you did. All right. Chris wonders why the mullet isn't taken seriously as a slicey boat. That's a really good question. I think we'd have to ask Shane for that. I have paddled the mullet. It is a good, fun boat. It's got a good haul, but when you get above class four, it seems more of a novelty than a performance boat. Ryan from Astral's writing, and I'm pretty sure he's just doing this to see if we'd read anything from Astral, and he might be right. Does the five-second rule apply to soup? No. Dumb question. There we go. Oh, man, that was the closest. 56 seconds. That was the closest we've ever been. Not bad. So I did call Shane about this mullet question because I thought it was interesting. And? Well, we got a discussion about the origin of the BRAP and the mullet because everyone would talk about Slicey Boats from Liquid Logic. The BRAP is the first one that comes up. Uh, Shane and Pat designed the BRAP and 
it was really Pat's idea was to have a slicey boat that could run big white water in, and that's why it has the volume that it does. Um, Shane designed the mullet so that he could have a slicey boat to take on the green that was going to float him really high. He wanted to float really high. It's, he calls it a bigger person boat. He, you know, he weighs 200 pounds, and it's for people his size and bigger. Um, but I asked him that question. He thought it was because big boats aren't taken seriously. They're just kind of set aside in terms of boat discussions, and he could be right about that. But um, we went on to talk about how they make the party brap and stuff like that, but I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, he also wanted to mention that they're going to start squishing the mullet tail down like they do on the, on the party brap, and that you will no longer... The, the original mullet, as it stands right now, will no longer be available basically as of today. So they're going to make the start even smaller. They're going to squish the mullet stern with sandbags like they do with the party brap starting today. Really? Yeah, every, everyone everyone's requesting a slicier stern on the mullet. That seems to be the general trend. Well, I think Pat and Shane were both looking for a boat they could run bigger water and so they kept the sterns a little bit higher volume. People generally want a squishier stern. So... And he told me how they do it. They pull the, you know, they pull the, to make a brap into a party brap, they pull it out of the mold, out of the brap mold. Then they have a, a, like a form, like a cooling form. They put, put it on and they just lay a sandbags on this thing while the boat's still hot. And they have a diagram exactly how to lay the sandbags to get the stern form correctly. Yeah. I've seen him do it. So, yeah. Um, oh, kind of on the uh, party brap mullet train, I paddled both the medium and large ripper since we last spoke. And I agree a lot of what Lewis said. I uh, the boat is faster than the party brap. I'll just talk about the medium here. It's a little less comfortable comfortable for me. I felt like my seating and my leg position was not as good as in the party brap. One thing I liked a lot about it, it surfed really good. You know, it's got more of a flat bottom than the party wrap. It was definitely easier to squirt. Super solid when you're on the stern. Like you can just like keep it on that you can dip the stern and keep it down for as long as you want. But that also kind of lends to when you're in hard whitewater and that stern goes ever goes under, you'll be sitting around for a while waiting for it to come back up. And that kind of like was a little unnerving when I was in some harder rapids. So all right, was, brap, brap or either size ripper. I'm going to stick with my party brap. I'm still with you on this one. I think. And Shane, Shane had an interesting observation on this. You know, uh, it's because the brap is narrower, um, and there's certain people who like narrower boats. And I also mentioned I like the Session Plus more than the Home Slice. And he said, yeah, once again, it's because this is a 24-inch wide hull. It's just a narrower hull, and certain people like narrow hulls. I, I, that was an interesting observation, which kind of rings true to me. Yeah, but I really like that Ripper too. I had a blast in it. So yeah, I think I need to need to acquire a Ripper. It's on my list. I mean, it was really good. It's a great boat. It's a great boat, but I, I don't know. It's something about pl- maybe it's planing hulls. It's just a planing hull that I'm just not completely down with for that kind of a boat. Yeah, they were just a little different. I think really for me is I've just spent so much time in the party brat, but dude, I loved it. I thought it was badass. I loved it. There was two size. Um, yeah. I was sick. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we are now on to our final segment. We are so incredibly far over time. I can't believe it. This is everyone's favorite segment of the show. This is where we go on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave. Who would like to lead us off on this one? 
I'm completely unprepared, by the way, for this one. I'm making it up right now. I'll do a rant. I'll step up. Bring it on. So we're talking about GoPros and social media. Uh, and then, you know, the New York Times did an article this morning on Facebook, you know, exterminating these really, you know, disarming sites of spreading min- inf- misinformation. It just seems to me that social media has become a gigantic vector for trouble. Uh, I mean, and there was a, a big push a few months ago about getting off of Facebook and people were sort of getting off Facebook for privacy reasons. But I don't... <sighs> I am getting. I, I just think that social media is doing more harm than good nowadays, and I just, I just got a really bad feeling about about what it's doing to our culture and uh, on a societal level and individually as well. I just every every public place I go, I see people on their phones, and it just reminds me of Brave New World, with uh, you know the the drug that's keeping people sort of submissive. You know, I don't know. It's a very vague rant, but I'm just getting a very bad feeling about all of this. I'm with you, man. I I quit Facebook like maybe four or five months ago now, and it's it's like kind of inconvenient. And like, I mean, there are pluses and minuses to it, but I just sort of felt like, on balance, it's making the world a worse place, and on balance, it was making me personally less happy. It just seems like there's a lot of bad players who are taking advantage of people who are powerless before these social media tools, you know? Well, there's definitely a reason that I didn't build the Hammer Factor platform on Facebook, you know? So I'm I'm with you on that one. I mean, it's definitely the bad is starting to outweigh the good more and more every day. Um, Lewis? So because there's no water here right now and because I'm – it's a good thing we just moved here. <laughs> Dude, there's so it's much perfect. water out here right now. It's only going to get better. Don't worry. But yeah, so I was perusing kayaking videos on YouTube because that's the depths to which I've sunk. And I watched this video of old Liam Fournier tearing it up on the Chekamis and his Axiom. And the top comment on this video is, looks like it looks like an RPM or like this is exactly like an RPM. And like any time... You know, a new Akai company comes out with like a new creek boat and like you don't even see a picture of the hull and somebody's commenting on boater talk or social media or whatever. And it's like, oh, it looks like a nomad. And it's like, you know what? Like, yeah, I mean, the Axiom looks like the RPM in that it's nine feet long and made of plastic and has a hole in the middle and a stern <laughs> small enough that you can do pivot turns with. But the hull is totally different. And, you know, the same thing is true for all these boats. And it's like when you just start like... I mean, I don't know what people expect these things to look like. Like, it's going to be, you know, minor refinements to a degree from here out. Or like, you know, Piranha comes out with the Macno and everybody's like, oh, it looks like a tuna. And it's like, yeah, it does look like a tuna, but I bet you it doesn't paddle like a tuna. Like, paddle it and see, you know? (laughs) Like, small differences make a big difference. And don't... I mean, there's nothing wrong with forming judgments about boats to a degree based on some of this stuff. But, like... Come on, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, well said. Um, all right, I have a rave, and I'm going to follow it up with a rant. Am I allowed to do that? Whatever. We have rules here, man. Come on. Okay. Man, you you ran cherry bomb for the first time. You can do whatever the fuck you want. All right. So I'm going to rave about. Have you? Are you guys aware of the blue green algae and the red tide and everything that's going on in Florida right now? 
I mean, there are just hundreds and hundreds of miles of beach where there is just you can't even walk on the beach. There's dead fish, whales, dolphins, manatees, everything you can think of. I mean, the the ocean is just dying. Okay, and the local community has really got to bet uh, together. There's a few guys I know who live down there, some anglers, some people who make their living off of stand-up paddle shops and that kind of thing, and they've really banded together. And I'm going to rave about. They are, there's no blaming, no finger pointing, no this is what happened in the past. All of the conversations are about what can we do to fix this? What, you know, what, what do we do to move forward? We all have to work together. Um, so I'm just going to rave about that. There's nothing political involved. They're just like, everybody's like, look at our beaches. People are leaving in droves. The condos are empty. Let's all get together. I'm going to rant that it took that much, that catastrophic of a thing for people to realize that, and this is a double-edged rant, that you don't need your lawn to be perfectly green 365 days a year, that you don't like constantly have to be dumping fertilizer on every one of your potted plants. Every single person in Florida, if you go down there, I mean, everybody's dumping this phosphorus and all of these, this nitrogen and whatever on their grass. I mean, there's more golf clubs, uh, golf courses in that state than like, I don't know, there's thousands of golf courses in that state. And it's just, I'm super stoked that they're legitimately taking a look at it. But I just wish the modern American green lawn would just go away. Like, just go away. Just that one thing. People like, talk about oh it's big sugar doing it and oh it's this the other things but dude you fly a plane over the top of if you're just like leaving tampa and you're like flying over over the state i mean you look down and you look at every single weird green lawn down there none of them should be there so i'm gonna i'm gonna rant about just lawns in general just mow it down it's all good you mow it down you don't need all that stuff if it's a little brown it's cool it gets green when it rains great that's good cool. that's cool that's it all right. <clears throat> that is it, isn't it? <laughs> you think the, you think this, the half slicey boats are going to be a a category of boats from here on out? Uh, I think so. I love like creek boats, play boats, and half slicey boats, like the river running brappy type things. You should I think be. that's a new category. They're great. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Hundred percent. My message is to Shane because I know you're listening. Let's make you, you know. Let's go ahead and. You know, I realize you don't want to make a small party, Brap. I understand the reasons behind that, but let's go ahead and start working on the next round of slicey river running boats and come up with uh, three sizes. Let's push that. And let's make, before we make a small party, Brap, let's make a big party, Brap. I need a, if my party, Brap would be absolutely perfect if it was just a little bigger. Well, Shane mentioned that, you know, after a year and a half or so after you design a boat, you know, the track record for designing iterations of that are very poor. And I could see. I'm sure you could look at a, the, the numbers and see that makes no sense. But let's go ahead and let's go ahead and up the game a little bit. Come up with a new design. Okay, I'm done. I mean, it can be improved upon. Everything can be improved upon. So, All right. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Hammer Factor 56. That was a long one, but I think a good one. And uh, we will see you next week or so. All right. Till next time.